The word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how John the Baptist's preaching gets summed up at the start of Matthew chapter 3. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's so last that he's in the New Testament. It's been the work of the prophets to declare that the Christ, the Messiah, is coming. And John's task is no different. In fact, he's a prophet who fulfills prophecy, for he is the one spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John is preparing the way of the Lord by preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He goes on to tell the people why repentance is necessary. Namely, the Messiah is coming on the day of judgment to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The image John uses is that he comes to harvest the world. The repentant are the wheat bound for the barn while the unrepentant are chaff-headed for unquenchable fire. Therefore, as John's preaching often gets summed up by people, repent or else. If I can slip into marketing language for a second, is that really a winning message? As we redo our wrecked sign out front, has never once occurred to me that we should have it say, Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, repent or face unquenchable fire. I'm guessing that it would not make people want to drop in. 
However, we hear that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan go out to hear John. They listen to him. They repent. And they're baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So why does he draw that crowd? Well, maybe we need to take a closer look at the word repent. We normally think of it in its technical sense, its narrow sense in the small catechism, namely that repentance is sorrow over sin and trust in Jesus. And that is most certainly true, but there's more. Literally, the word repentance in Greek means a change of mind. So to repent means to stop thinking one way and to start thinking another. Or better, when it comes to faith, to repent means to stop believing what is wrong or false and to start believing what is right and true. So, for instance, let's say that you have children who think it's a perfectly fine idea to run into the street without worrying about traffic. This is, in fact, a bad idea. So you teach them to look both ways before they cross the street. You've now taught them to stop thinking one way and to start thinking another. Note that while what they were doing before was foolish and dangerous, it wasn't malicious or intentional sin. Nevertheless, in learning to look both ways, they changed their mind. That's a form of repentance. Or say that you have children who are looking for something to do on a cold December day and remembering the fun that they had camping during the summer, they decide that it would be a good idea to start a campfire in the middle of the living room floor. I must confess, by the way, that I'm a little bit worried about when your children get to confirmation class. At any rate, you determine that a fire in the middle of the living room floor is also a bad idea. And so you take care to teach them that starting a fire inside the house is a very bad idea because a house is a blessing from God and a necessity for life. When you have taught your children to think that a living room campfire is a bad idea and that preserving the house is a good idea, then they have repented. Now let me be the first to say that parenting isn't easy. And your children may not appreciate your careful attention to make sure that they are not hit by a bus or hurt in a house fire. Whatever your children think of you for taking these measures, for what it's worth, I approve of what you've done. Enough with your hypothetical rabble-rousers, though. Let's say that the Lord has designed men and women to live forever, holy and joyful, in body, mind, and soul. Let's say that the first man and woman sin against God with the result that all of their descendants by nature believe the wrong things and do the wrong things, and that the consequence of their wrongness is that they face eternal death instead of eternal life. Running into traffic, burning down houses, that's child's play compared to the bad ideas that span mankind. They're running headlong into destruction. And their wrong thoughts, their wrong beliefs include things like God doesn't exist, God holds grudges, or God doesn't care. But let's say that God does care, and he still so desires that people live forever, that he's willing to become flesh and shed his own blood to make it so. He wants all people to be holy, to stop thinking the wrong things, and to stop doing the wrong things. 
So he wins salvation and desires to give this gift to all. The problem is that everybody by nature believes the wrong things. They believe that they are unforgivable or that death is better than life or that God is cruel and desires their suffering and doom. Therefore, the work of God is to get them to believe the right thing, the true thing, that he desires them to live forever so much that he's given his only son to die for them, and that for Jesus' sake, he forgives their sins and gives them eternal life. God thus works to get people to stop believing what is false and wrong and start believing what is right and true. In other words, God works repentance. Now, if God works in you so that you believe that he loves you, forgives you, and gives you eternal life for Jesus' sake, is repentance such a bad thing? Of course, despite God's gift of salvation, people still want to do sinful things far worse than running into traffic or setting the house on fire, and these sins make them unholy and drive them towards doing and believing the wrong things. He thus gives his commandments and says, Thou shalt not this and thou shalt that in order to be righteous. And people respond that God is terribly mean and uncaring and doesn't want them to have any fun. Whereas God is simply telling them how to stay alive. Enter John the Baptist with his sermon, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A lot of people are going to get that wrong, as if John is like the collection goons stopping by and saying, Nice world you've got here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. But John's message is quite the opposite. John rightly points out what they already know. Something has happened to this world, and it's going to end. They can sense it in their troubled consciences, in the fear of their own deaths. But it doesn't have to be that way. John is telling them to stop believing that there is no hope, to stop believing that God is cruel or uncaring, for those are the lies of the evil one. He's telling them to start believing that God desires people to live forever in a world so delivered from sin that the wolf dwells with the lamb and the cow and the bear graze together. John is calling upon them to believe the truth that God desires to pour out forgiveness, life, and salvation upon them at no cost to them. That's the repentance that John preaches. Stop believing that there is no hope and start believing that there is. That doesn't sound dreary to me at all. How is this news possible? Because, says John, the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom is near because the king is near. The Messiah is about to arrive on scene in the flesh. See, before he comes to judge all peoples on the last day, he first comes in time to save them. He comes to bear their sins to the cross and to shed his blood to atone for them. He calls his cross a distressing baptism. See, before he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire on the last day, 
He suffers the fire himself well before on the cross in the place of sinners. And if he's taken the fire, all that's left for you is the Holy Spirit, whom he already pours out upon you well before the last day, when you are baptized by water and the word. Stop believing that you have no hope. Because Jesus has died to redeem you, and because you're forgiven and washed clean in baptism, you have hope and life in Christ. That's repentance. And let's be clear, repentance doesn't start with you groveling before God to find some way to spare you. Repentance begins with the truth that Christ has already died to redeem you. A life of repentance, then, is the ongoing acknowledgement of the truth that you're not a lost sinner anymore, but that you live as a child of God. It's the daily embrace of the joy that you're not in bondage to sin anymore, but that you're set free as a new creation to live according to God's word. In thankfulness, then, repentance is also the daily discipline of resisting temptation, avoiding sin, and confessing your sins when you do. Make no mistake, the temptation to do otherwise is great. Most people realize that it is a bad idea to run into traffic or to start a fire in the living room, but there are all sorts of ways to sin. So daily you'll be tempted to return to your favorite sins. Stop believing that's a good idea. Remember that those sins destroy faith, destroy you, and keep believing that in Christ you're set free from sin. If the pull to return to sin and deny God's word is great upon you, a redeemed believer, then you can understand that it is far worse for the one who is still trapped in sin. Not seeing that the gospel offers hope in Christ Sinners will see the church as a moralistic judge that needs to be silenced even when obvious truths are denied. The culture wars of our day illustrate this truth. And don't forget that John the Baptist was martyred for defending the sanctity of marriage. This ought not stop Christians from defending what is true and good, even if the world exacts a cost. But remember... Confessing the faith begins with repentance and redemption. In other words, do not take on the world by saying, I have to because God commands it. No, you, you speak the truth before the world because you know the truth, and the truth has set you free, and it's just too good to keep to yourself. Repent, my friends, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was true when John preached and Jesus soon appeared to be baptized. And it is just as true here and now today. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's here at Orchard and Kasha because the king is here in his word and his sacraments, pouring out his spirit upon you until the last day dawns. And the lion does dwell with the lamb forevermore. What joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.